0: This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. Navigating the Christian life in a secular world will inevitably stir questions in the lives of thoughtful believers. In Ask Pastor John, Tony Reinke summarizes and organizes 10 years of the most insightful and popular episodes of the Ask Pastor John podcast, allowing readers to quickly and systematically access Piper's insights on hundreds of topics, including Bible reading, dating, social media, mental health, and more. Pick up a copy of Ask Pastor John wherever books are sold, or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. Happy New Year, everyone. Today, we're featuring a message from the 2019 TGC Podcast Archives. Listen in as Trevin Wax encourages us on how to pursue faithfulness in an anxious age.
1: Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, for your grace. Pray, Father, that... uh, you would take the truths that we discuss here today, you've given us in your word, that you would plant them deep into our hearts. They would bear fruit of peace, of joy, of faithfulness, of love in this generation that you've called us to be faithful to. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. We live in an age of anxiety. Uh, the anxiety stems from several sources, uh, constant connectivity, uh, economic distress, terrorism in the world, moral upheaval. The, po- the political challenges that our nation has faced in the last um, few years or so have led to a uh, resurgence of dystopian tales, so that's one of the reasons you see um, uh, 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 1984 George L. Orwell's dystopian novel, racing back up to the, the top of the sales charts, or uh, um, Brave New World from Aldous Huxley. Uh, you've got the continual success of The Hunger Games, right? Dystopia, dystopian literature uh, has uh, found a place in the hearts of many Americans And I've been reading recently about some of the wealthiest people in our world who are uh, building bunkers. And, you know, you you used to think of preppers as like people out in the woods. No, like some of the wealthiest people in the world are building bunkers in different parts of the world in order to ride out the cultural apocalypse they think is coming. Apparently, New Zealand is the place where most of these people are building bunkers. So if you're going to move somewhere... That's the place to go. You can read about this in the New Yorker. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, but Christians are not immune to the waves of pessimism and these bursts of anxiety that are taking place in our, in our country. Recently, I was talking with an older Christian um, who was just really distressed, depressed over current events and things that he was witnessing. And, and he said, Trevin, I, I guess I just feel hopeless for our country these days. Uh, I'm becoming a pessimistic old man. That's what he told me. And you know, I'm certain that there are people in your congregation who feel the same way. Uh, They may not be old. Uh, They might be young and pessimistic about the prospects for a career, or uh, they may be anxious over cultural shifts that are leaving them out of the mainstream of society, or uh, they, they may be viewing the future with a sense of resignation, that perhaps the best thing that we can do is just hold on to whatever it is that we we think we have. You know, whether they're old or young, rich or poor, male or female, these are people that we have the responsibility to lead. Now, there's something to be said for um, growing weary of earth, myself, and sin, as the old hymn goes, right? Um, We are to be Sad at some of the developments that we see in our time. Uh, blessed are those who mourn, Jesus told us, right? Uh, or as John Stott said, the truth is there are such things as Christian tears, and too few of us ever weep them. So, those of us who feel the weight of the world's evil, of the world's pain, of the world's suffering, we know there is a place for weeping. So, part of the challenge for pastors and for church leaders today is to help people mourn for the state of our world, for the fallen state of our world, while at the same time helping people be courageous and cheerful because of the hope of the gospel. That is a a challenge that is upon us as Christian leaders in the 21st century. Pessimism must never become our default. An overly pessimistic view of the world leads to a defensive posture. A defensive posture leads to defensive decision-making. And we eventually will start making decisions based on maintenance rather than mission. Holding on to what we have holds us back from moving forward with the confidence in the power of the gospel. So, today we ask the question how can we move forward with faith and not fear during these challenging times? How can we equip people to, to see the current challenges in light of the unchanging gospel and the unstoppable church of Jesus Christ? We're, we're asking questions today in this session about uh, the fortifying of our faith. When the ground shifts, we want to feel the the sturdiness of the church's structure, the rock-solid foundation of the gospel that we believe. So how do we move forward with faith and not fear? And to answer this question, I'm going to read a familiar passage of scripture about the one who perfects our faith, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, Since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now in the time that we have today, I'd like to point out four essential truths that we must put before our people again and again if we are to have a fortified faith for the future, okay? The the author of Hebrews begins the section in this way. So he starts off, says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. So the first truth that we must keep sight of is simply this. Number one, we are not alone, We are not alone. Do not let people fall for the false idea that we must somehow face spiritual and cultural challenges on our own. Now, I know sometimes it may feel like we are embattled, we are pressed in from all sides. You know, you, you hear in the news, you see these religious liberty challenges. Uh, we're concerned about the coarsening of our culture. Uh, we consider the the political dysfunction in our society, the, the decline of morals uh, and character among people who hold office. Uh, we feel surrounded by the, the uh, ideology of the sexual revolution, and that is inculcated through movies and music or increasingly our schools and colleges. Right? It is easy to feel alone, surrounded and alone. But this text would have us see the world differently. To recognize that, yes, we are surrounded, but not by cultural challenges and not by the gospel's enemies. We are surrounded by the large cloud of witnesses. We are not alone. We stand in a long line of saints who have gone before us, who are now seated in the heavenly coliseum, and they're cheering us on as we run the race before us. So that's why one of the things that we must do as leaders, both for ourselves and for our people, is to lift our eyes from this current cultural moment, to listen to the words of the psalmist, to hear the laments of the prophets, recall the stories of our ancestors, visit our church fathers, uh, listen to the, the stories from our missionary mothers, and realize that spiritual struggle is the norm, not the exception. And over and over again, the large cloud of witnesses would say to us, keep your gospel bearings. We need the, the, the gospel to help us keep our footing when the world seems to be shaking. We are not sliding down a hill into an abyss, neither are we climbing up a ladder into the heavens. The world is what it has always been. It is the place where the powers and principalities array themselves against the living God and where Jesus Christ promises to return and to reign. That's the world we live in. So let's apply apply this truth now, this this idea that, that we are not alone. And let me just say one way to remind your people of the large cloud of witnesses is by referencing heroes of church history often in your preaching and teaching. Remind people over and over again that we are not the first generation of Christians to study a particular passage of scripture. So quote from Ambrose, consult Chrysostom, study Augustine, hand out biographies of Tyndale, Knox, and Wesley, lean on preachers like Spurgeon or missionaries like Lottie Moon. Let let the, the cloud of witnesses be heard, not just seen in your preaching and in your teaching and in your writing. Tell their stories. Inspire your congregation and let your people know they're not the first to face challenges. We're not the first here. We are not alone. So, we are surrounded by witnesses, those who are currently in heaven, but also we're surrounded by witnesses that are here now, still on earth, often in cultures and societies far different from our own. So, when people ask, you know, how can I be faithful in this time? Uh, How can I make sure I am meeting the challenges ahead with faith and not fear? I say we ought to change the question How can we be faithful? how can we meet the challenges ahead? We are not alone in the struggle. We are part of a church, a church that is both global and local. And so one of the ways that we equip believers right now to to bear the stigma of standing for Christ is that we do so together. We are the family of God. You know, it's, it's one thing to be a lone individual who's out there taking a stand, but it's another thing to know That your church is behind you, a great cloud of witnesses is above you, and a global remnant of faithful believers is around you. We need to consistently put before our people all three elements, okay? The church triumphant now in heaven, the church around the world, and the local church that we are part of. So listen to the voices of brothers and sisters across the world. Let let me encourage you pastors, preachers in here, get commentaries from Christians on other continents and quote from them regularly. Tell the stories of Christians who are persecuted in the Middle East. Share the stories of Christians faithful right now in secular Europe. Follow the stories of believers in China. Just remember, remind people, we are not alone. If your tendency is to adopt a run for the hills kind of mentality. Then you're going to wind up like the prophet Elijah. After he called down fire on Mount Carmel, he went running from Jezebel. And he was bemoaning the fact that so few were faithful. And the Lord had to come to him and remind him, "Elijah, you're being silly." It's silly. There are millions of Christians who have not and will never bow the knee to Baal. We belong to a church that will outlast all empires. And we stand in a long line of men and women who rejoiced to suffer for the name of their Savior. What's a lion in a Colosseum next to the lion of Judah? So the local church here. So we have the global, you have the church triumphant in heaven. You have the, the, the global church reminding us that we're not alone. And then there's the local church. And this is essential, essential, not optional for Christian faithfulness. We were not made to stand on our own, but together. Why the importance of the local church? Because we need the local church to embody God's love toward us. The only way that we will ever be able to withstand the hatred of the world is if we are immersed in the love of God. The only way that we can live without the approval of others is if we are assured of God's approval of us in Christ. The only way that we can stand against the world when everyone is jeering us is when we know that God's people are there. They're behind us and they're cheering us on, reminding us that we are God's beloved children. Unless we are overcome by the love of God, we will be overcome by the fear of man. We need the church to reinforce that transformative power of God's love toward us. We are not alone in this. Jesus is with us. The spirit is in us. The church is around us. We are in this together. And I know this, this council, this idea is difficult because we live in a very hyper individualistic age, right? Um, church attendance is no longer as big of a priority for many Christians as it once was once. Tom Rainer has pointed out that 20 years ago, a faithful churchgoer was someone who went to church three times a week. Now, a faithful churchgoer is someone who goes to church three times a month. Now, the solution to that decline in prioritization of church attendance is not to shame people or try to guilt Christians into gathering more often together. After all... We don't go to church because of guilt. We are the church because of grace, right? So how would grace have us respond? I think the challenge here is that we must strengthen the bonds of the Christian community to the point that it becomes unthinkable that one could live the Christian life apart from a local congregation. Pastors, church leaders, we need to ask tough questions. What kind of culture are we creating in our churches? What kind of culture are we building you know the, the church should feel like an oasis of faith hope and love in the middle of a dark and dusty world a, a place of love that makes rejection from this world more tolerable because of the embrace that we receive from the church we are not alone And our witness today, our faithfulness in an age age of anxiety is going to be dependent in how we invest in our local congregations. If we are going to be able to build communities, beautiful communities of faith that shine in a world of darkness. Okay? So first truth, we are not alone. Number two, sin and struggle do not define us. Sin and struggle do not define us. Uh, The second major truth that we must reinforce, that we need to remember, is that, look, sin and struggle may hinder us, but they do not define us. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. You know, I, I love this emphasis here on casting off weights, right? Putting struggles and obstacles behind us, untangling ourselves from the sins that would cause us to slip up, right? So... Do Christians slip and fall? Yes. But we should be best known for running. Uh, We are saints who sometimes sin, racers who sometimes stumble, but sins and struggles do not define us. The Christian is not defined by the sins of the past, nor the struggle of the present, but by the vision of the future. You see the finish line and like, Paul says, you you run to win the prize. So what are some of the hindrances and sins that might ensnare us in an age of anxiety? You know, I think there are some dangers that we're all very aware of, uh, we're very conscious of. You know, we live in a pluralistic world, uh, and so there's pressure on Christians to abandon the truth that Jesus is the only way to God. Uh in the midst of a moral revolution, there is the temptation for Christians to either deny or at least downplay the truth about sexuality and marriage. We know those temptations. We, we sense those cultural pressures. But, but I want to point out two sins that you may not think about as often, but that are vitally important for us to take note of if we are going to truly stand out in an age of anxiety. Grumbling and worrying. Both are signs that we are meeting cultural challenges with fear and not faith. Both of these are sins that easily ensnare us. So let's start with grumbling. I I have a good reason for focusing my attention here. Um, When Paul told the church in Philippi uh, to work out your own salvation, uh, the first command he gives after that is don't grumble do everything without grumbling or arguing that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. So why start with grumbling? Have you you ever thought about that? I mean, we might expect an exhortation to spiritual disciplines or strategies for thriving as pure and faultless people in a sinful world. And Yes, Paul does talk about blamelessness, and he does talk about purity, and he talks about holding firm to the word of life, but, but this purity is somehow connected to the first command to do everything without grumbling. So why start here? I think it's because Paul knows well the story of the children of Israel. Remember the children of Israel? They, the Passover lamb was sacrificed on their behalf. They were set free from bondage to Egypt. They went out through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness toward the promised land. Having been graciously redeemed through an act of deliverance none of their generation could ever even imagine, they began to grumble. This was the big sin of Israel. They chose grumbling over gratitude. Fast forward to first century Philippi, the church like Israel, have been brought out of slavery to sin and death. Through the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, these Philippians had received atonement for their sins. Uh, They passed through the waters of baptism, and they're headed toward the promised land. And in the dark wilderness of the first century, Paul knew that grumbling and arguing would keep them from shining like stars in a dark world. And now fast forward even further. Here we are 2,000 years later and much of our world feels like a wilderness. We too live in a crooked and twisted generation where crooks are elevated and perversion celebrated. And I sometimes hear pastors frustrated by some of the challenges of this time. Uh, sometimes frustrated that the sexual revolution is such a hot button issue in in our time. I, I hear pastors some like, you know, couldn't we have a different challenge? I mean, why does it have to be this one? You know, I'm so tired of talking about sex and marriage and relationships, you know, and, and they look back with fondness at previous eras and, and wish they could relive the debates of, a, of another generation, another era. And to that, I simply say, listen, grumbling about this cultural moment usually leaves us wistful for another, but we will never be faithful in the present as long as we are yearning for the past. The only era that we should long for is a future one, when the kingdom comes fully on earth as it is in heaven. And what's more, grumblers, they don't tend to be very persuasive or appealing when they share their faith. In fact, I would say grumblers rarely share their faith at all. Uh, It's hard to joyfully and consistently proclaim the gospel when all you do is complain about your mission field. Murmuring does not further God's mission. So whenever we look at the state of our world and we wag our fingers or we shake our heads or wish that we had been born in another time or another place, we question God's sovereignty and we resent the task that he has given us. Faithfulness starts not with grumbling, but with gratitude. This is our time. Holding firm to the word of life It may be difficult, it may be hard, there may be struggle involved, but it is a thrilling adventure. We are not digging in like cranks who resent societal shifts or cultural changes. We're not digging in. It's called standing. We're simply standing with the smile of faith that knows that God is good and sovereign and that his everlasting joy will spread to all peoples. So grumbling is a sin that ensnares us. But another sin that tempts us is is worry. And, you know, Paul says later in Philippians, uh, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I, I like to think of this instruction from Paul as warning us off the wrong road, okay? We're in a race, right? And Paul wants to make sure that we're going to uh, avoid the obstacle that might trip us up or might keep us from the right lane, make us go the wrong direction. Paul is saying, look, a lot of people get off on the road to worry, but that's the wrong way. Don't go there, Philippians. Don't go there, believers. Christians, 2,000 years later in the 21st century, we shouldn't go there. Don't get sidetracked instead of being known for running our race, too often we let struggles and sins define us and then we give in to worry. I work with a guy named Michael Kelly. He's a great writer, good friend, good leader. Michael's oldest son battled leukemia for many years and it was a serious time of testing for his family. So Michael has known hardship. And so... When he writes about worry, I kind of sit up and take notice, Uh, because this is someone who knows firsthand what pain and sorrow is, what it's like to have more questions for God than answers, what it's like to cry into your pillow at night. And here's what Michael says about the power of a Christian who doesn't succumb to worry and anxiety. He says this, when we live with a lack of anxiety about the future, even in those tightrope kind of times, we communicate the truth that our God is indeed worthy of our trust. We don't fret over the future because he holds it in his hands. We don't wring our hands in worry because he, we know he is charting the course. That sort of confidence invites others into it. Do you see the evangelistic appeal of that kind of confidence? In an age of anxiety, peace that surpasses all understanding becomes an evangelistic reinforcement. Peace is what makes us stand out. Now, if you're a worrywart in here, Come on, you can fess up. We all know who we are. Um, you know what happens when we worry, right? I mean, you, you've, you've been there. You, you start to rehearse in your mind all of the possible scenarios of what could go wrong, uh, of how bad things are, of what might happen in your church or in your city or to your kids or your grandkids or in Washington, D.C. And listen, in a hyper-connected world, we have more opportunities than ever to worry. More reasons to worry. You, you walk through situations in your mind and you foresee bad things and it just consumes you. I, I saw a tweet last night. I wish I need to go back and remember who, who originally said this. But um, someone uh, uh, said, worry is visionary except without any optimism. <laughs> it, you, you foresee all these potential bad things that could happen in the future, right? Uh, but listen, we're not going to run our race well if we get off the racetrack and we just keep going around in circles and that's that's what that what worry does um any of you ever driven a car in england um let me tell you it is a challenge they drive on the other side of the road the steering wheel's on the other side of the car Uh, it's it's difficult trying to drive there if you learn to drive here i uh, our family was in in uh, the london area in september for a, a family wedding and um I rented this van that was similar to the van that we have uh, at um, uh, at home, and I just I, I watched on YouTube like instructions about how to make sure I was going. So here I have all of my family in the car, all this precious cargo. I don't even know how many curbs I hit while I was there, and you know what's even worse? The roundabouts. They hardly have intersections in England. They're all roundabouts, and they're two or three lanes, four lanes at once in a roundabout, and they're going the opposite way than they go in the United States. I mean, you make a wrong turn in a roundabout, and it is sudden death, right? <laughs> Every time we would take a roundabout, I was just like, hey, don't mind all the people honking, kids. It's just your dad trying to keep us alive, you know? that's. I tell you, the battle for American independence was worth it, if only for us having fewer roundabouts. Uh, <laughs> Listen, I think of worry like roundabouts, except you never get off on the right exit. You just keep circling, and you just keep circling, and your trials keep honking at you. Listen, worry is a roundabout that will keep you from running the race the way God intends. So don't worry. Instead, Paul says, pray. Pray. Take all of those things you're rehearsing in your mind, take them to the Lord. The, the, the challenges you see on the news or on your Twitter feed or in social media, take those, those, those elements that weigh on your heart, take them to the Lord. Don't rehearse them in your mind. I love how New Testament scholar Lynn Kohick puts it. She says, worry is a signal that our gaze has shifted to the swirling clutter of events at our feet. We must lift our head and raise our eyes to the throne of God, the figure of Jesus present with us. Sin does not define us. Struggle does not define us. Our salvation in Jesus Christ is what defines us. So let's not substitute joy in our eternal salvation with grumbling and worrying about temporary troubles. Number three, third truth we must keep in mind is that we have a mission. We have a mission Because next we read this, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. So the focus is on the race ahead and the endurance we will need to run it. This is our race. This is our mission. We are following Jesus. And this is an important truth. Listen, as pastors and church leaders, we are to constantly remind Christians of the true race we are in. It's not what we call the rat race. What a lot of people live according to, this world of ladder climbing for career, a race to accumulate the most stuff, a race to achieve status or success. No, it's a race to become like Jesus and make Jesus known. We are given a mission. And it's easy for Christians to become distracted by cultural challenges. And and I, I think there are some Christians, when they look at the state of the world and they look at uh, marginalization of Christians in the future, they, they begin to wonder if we're involved in a lost cause, right? They see these signs of secularization, or they're they they they're just faced with the challenges of achieving true racial reconciliation in our country, or they see these there's these ominous overtones toward those who uphold traditional morality, and a lot of people think you know, what's the use? I guess I'm just going to keep running in the right direction, but I don't expect we're really going to get anywhere. If you think you're going to lose, you're not going to run as fast. Runners compete to win. And winning isn't defined by success in Hollywood or Washington, D.C. or Silicon Valley anyway. Anyway. This is why it's really important for us as church leaders to maintain a focus on our mission during times when it would be easy for us to get overwhelmed or discouraged. We all know the challenges of ministry. We see the cultural challenges in our world, but the gospel blows up pessimism. If you truly believe that the word of God has authority, that it will accomplish its purpose, that it will not return empty, if you truly believe that, a ch- that God has a church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, then you fortify yourself for spiritual battle, not for surviving a spiritual siege. We are marching to Zion, not retreating to the barracks. We are on a mission. And one way that we will need to remind people of their mission is by making sure that they are able to see and resist the false worldviews that are swirling around us today. Now, I I don't have time to go into a great detail here uh, because this is this is what I've written about the most recently. It is the heartbeat of this is our time. But but in a nutshell, let me just say that reminding people of our mission and training people to be good missionaries in our context means we are going to need to look for three things when we are confronted with the messages and the myths and the worldviews in the world. Okay. Um, and they all start with L because deep down I'm a Baptist and we just alliterate everything. All right. The longing. First, we need to see that there is usually something good and right in the stories that our society tells. There's a longing there. When someone believes a myth about, a wor- about the world or uh, goes for a worldview, it's usually because deep down, they want something in that story to be true. The question we should ask as good missionaries is, why? Why do people who see the world this way, why do they want to imagine the world is this way? Why do people want this story to be true? It may be that they are longing for God and they are looking in the wrong place for that longing to be fulfilled. They believe a myth because they are trying to satisfy something in their soul. Now, the myth that they believe may be bad, but the longing often is good. Civil rights activist John Perkins has said it this way, the job of an evangelist is to to connect God's good news with people's deep yearnings. Listen, we find common ground when we see past the myths that people believe to the longings that are behind them. So the longing first, but second, the lie, the lie. It's not enough to look for the deeper longing behind the myth. We must also challenge what's bad about the myth. The gospel doesn't simply affirm the deepest longings of humanity. It also challenges and reshapes those longings. And in doing so, it exposes the lie. If we do not expose the lies at the heart of the stories in our society, we are going to imply to people that the Christian view of the world is just one option among many. Just one way of finding fulfillment. No, Christianity must offer truth. It is a message that exposes false beliefs and practices. So the longing, the lie, and then the light, the light of the gospel. Uh, We speak of the gospel as light because, well, the biblical writers refer to Jesus Christ as the light of the world and then uh, refer to God's word that way. We need light. We want light. We were not made to live in darkness. It's one reason that torturers make use of the dark. People in winter suffer from seasonal affective syndrome sometimes. Uh, But light also exposes, and sometimes it blinds our eyes. So Christians who shine the light of the gospel on the myths of our world are not simply saying this is right and this is wrong, but this is better. This is better. The gospel tells a better story. Yes, the gospel exposes the lies that we believe and promote in our society, but but once our eyes adjust to the brightness of the gospel, we discover how the gospel also answers our deeper longings in ways that surprise us. So evangelism is on the one hand, yes, convincing people that the gospel is true, but evangelism is also showing people that the gospel is better, that it's better than the worldviews of our society. Now, I know we've got to move on to the last point, but let me just give you a very quick example of how, what shape that our mission in North America is going to, going to take. According to research from Gabe Lyons and David Kinneman in their book, Good Faith, 84% of Americans believe enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. In other words, 8 out of 10 Americans are hedonists. I mean, that's one way of defining a hedonistic philosophy. How do you enjoy yourself and find fulfillment? 86% of Americans say you've got to pursue the things you desire the most. 91% of Americans affirm this statement, to find yourself, look within yourself. So to sum up, most Americans believe that the purpose of life is enjoyment and that comes from looking deep within to find your true self while pursuing whatever brings you happiness. Now, I want to show you what church-growing Christians say in that survey. Not, not nominal Christians, church going Christians. 66% say the highest goal of life is enjoying yourself. 72% say you should, desire, you should pursue the things you desire most. And 76% agree that looking within yourself is the way to find yourself. Apparently, when it comes to questions about the purpose of life and the pursuit of happiness, Christians look an awful lot like the rest of the world. We are far from the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever in our churches. So what will mission in our century look like? Somehow, we are going to help, have to help our congregation. The people in our churches We're going to have to help them sift through songs about believing in yourself, following your dreams, looking inside to find the hero within or learning to love yourself, right. Uh, we have to help people see through books and movies where the main character casts off anything from the outside that pressures him or her into conformity. right? We have to take that vision of the world, that moralistic therapeutic deism, And we have to somehow not simply expose what's wrong with that. In our preaching, in our teaching, in our ministry, we have to be able to say, Jesus is better than that story. Jesus is better than that. So we don't only point out the flaws in that. We show how the gospel tells a better story. The gospel should come as a relief to people who are frustrated because they haven't been able to look deep enough within to find salvation or to to be able to pursue their own happiness and find out what they wanted to desire the most and, and be able to move forward in our in our society. So we have a mes- we have a message and we have a mission. And we have the spirit of God dwelling in us, empowering us for the task ahead. The spirit of God uses the gospel of God to motivate the people of God to be on mission with God. So do not let your church drift toward maintenance. We have a mission. Number four, Jesus is Lord of our hearts and all of history. Our hearts and all of history. So one last truth I want to mention here: something we should consistently put our, before our people in challenging times. Jesus is Lord both of our hearts and of history. So let, let, let's start for a second with the truth that Jesus is Lord of our hearts. You know, God is up to something. You know what he's up to? Your sanctification. He is making you holy. Hebrews 12, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, the author and finisher, the pioneer and completer. It's sometimes hard for people to believe that Jesus is in the business of finishing what he started because they know their own struggles. They know their own heart. Some of you in here, you know this battle well. Don't let people think that struggle is an anomaly for the Christian. We may not be defined by struggle. I mentioned that earlier. But that doesn't mean we're not going to face obstacles. Robin Phillips, in a recent article in Touchstone magazine, provides a good reminder for us. He says, by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, our goal, and the joy that is set before us as the end when we are fully united with him, we can find the energy we need to get right back up and keep struggling. Before our spiritual muscles are fully developed, and even afterwards, he says, we may stumble and fall more times than we can count, but what do we do? We get up and keep struggling, fixing our gaze on Christ. I love the the song from 10th Avenue North that says, um, hallelujah, we are free to struggle. We're not struggling to be free. See the gospel indicative? that we don't have to struggle to be free, precedes the gospel imperative. We are now freed to struggle against sin in the battle for holiness. Jesus is Lord of our hearts. but Jesus is also king over history. You know, the one who was crucified now reigns. It says, uh, uh, the end of that, that, those two verses I read, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We live in a time when people believe they are on the right side of history. And more than a few Christians wonder if the historic Christian faith will truly hold up to the scrutinizing eyes of 21st century Westerners. Are we standing in the way of progress? Are we not on board with the way the world is going? This idea of progress, right side of history, this wouldn't be a proper Trevin Wax talk if I didn't quote from G.K. Chesterton, so here goes. Uh, Chesterton saw through the myth of progress a century ago. He said, for the first 40 years of my life, practically no one in the world had any doubt whatever about the way the world was going. And, and most people during the, the early part of the 20th century uh, assumed that the world was moving toward democracy, human rights, greater freedom... The days of feuding families and pillaging peoples, oh, all of that's behind us, right? Technology and science are are ushering us into this new day, and these bloody battles of the past, they're going to become a distant memory. But then in the 1930s comes fascism, Nazism, communism, What a man knows now, Chesterton said, is that the whole march of mankind can turn and tramp backwards in its tracks, that progress can start progressing, or feeling as if it were progressing, in precisely the contrary course from that which had been called progress for centuries as he watched these events unfold in Europe in the 1930s during the twilight years of his life, Chesterton saw the myth of progress and saw it's not only wrong, it's dangerous. We should not think of the world going in this upward direction of unending progress. Uh, He says this, the world is what the saints and prophets saw it was. It is not merely getting better or merely getting worse. There is one thing that the world does. It wobbles. Chesterton was right. If we are going to be faithful in this, our time, we must figure out how to keep our bearings when the world goes wobbly. Now, the temptation for many in our day is we're going to respond to the world's idea of progress with an opposing lie, the myth of decline, the idea that we have fallen from some great pinnacle of holiness and we just need to get back, get back to where you once belonged for all the Beatles fans in here. Uh, some believe in the pristine days of the early church, and they want to return to the simplicity of, of those times. You know, I I love reading about the early church, but I just a easy read through the New Testament reveals that the early church, I mean, the earliest days were not flawless. I mean, in Corinth, the guy bragging about sleeping with his mother-in-law, the... I mean, they were, people were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. I mean, that's a lot of those little cups, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you, look at, you look at Corinth, you look at, I mean, you had doctrinal, I mean, last night, yesterday, John Piper, uh, reading Galatians 1, I mean, Paul is going after the Galatians, a doctrinal crisis right there. Disciplinary actions, divisive factions that often carry the day. Look, there's a lot that we, a lot of good that we can retrieve from the early church, but we cannot, we should not try to return. Now, in recent years, there's been a surge of interest in the church fathers, and listen, I mentioned earlier that we should quote from the writings of men like Chrysostom and Augustine and Basil, and I stand by that, and I love these newer translations and the commentaries on these ancient works. They offer spiritual nourishment. But but we should not think of the the ages of the ecumenical councils as some sort of golden age. These were also the years that gave us a negative view of the body, downplayed the ordinary Christian life, promoted ascetic extremes, tied together the the church and state to the point that crusades could be could be led in the name of the Prince of Peace. Right? There are all sorts of issues with the with the uh, the sort of golden era of Christianity that eventually led us to the time we desperately needed Reformation. And then there's the Reformation. Now, the gospel-centered movement looks back at the Reformation at times as the pinnacle from which we've fallen. And I want to say, even at a conference like this, we look back with gratitude for the recovery of justification by faith, for the doctrinal precision of this time, for the Puritan emphasis on personal piety, for the revivals that shook the landscape of early America. But even here, this is not a golden age. All of your reformational heroes are marred in some way or another. Luther's anti-Semitism. Calvin's egregious treatment of doctrinal disputants. Edwards' acceptance of slavery. Geneva is a ghost town with buried treasure that we can unearth, but it is not a home that we can ever inhabit again. So we must not fall for the myth of decline as if there's this, this golden age of the past that we're, we're trying to, to find and be faithful to. No, instead, we ought to look at history this way. Church history is a treasure box, not a map. We do not honor our forefathers and mothers by seeking to return to their times. No, instead, we honor them by receiving their wisdom and learning from their victories and learning from their failures. I tell you, all of these heroes of the faith that are now in the great cloud of witnesses, that's what they would be saying to us right now. Learn from what we got right, learn from what we got wrong. No golden age of Christianity existed in the past. All that we have, glory to God, is an unbroken line of broken sinners saved by the grace of God and empowered to transmit the gospel to the next generation. The world wobbles. But in charge of this wobbly world is the King of Kings, and, and that's why our message is hope, not progress. Christian hope means we. Christian hope is rooted in God. It's rooted in His promises. The Christian should be confident. That that doesn't mean we should be cocky. Just confident. We, we, we don't, we're not cocky in that we're, we're trusting in our own efforts to bring about a particular vision of the future. No, we're confident, though, because we believe that God is going to restore his creation and one day he will. Jesus Christ will return and he will make everything right again. And when societal shifts are happening and people in your congregation are getting pessimistic and they're worrying and they're grumbling, the temptation is that we will replace hope with something else. Will either replace hope with fear of the future or nostalgia for the past. Instead, we should let the scriptural storyline guide our way forward. We are to be a faithful people of hope. The challenge for us, we are living in a world where the easy path is one of um, the, the the French word is ressentiment. The James Davison Hunter defines it this way. It says, Resentiment is grounded in a narrative of injury, or at least perceived injury, a strong belief that one has been or is being wronged. The root of this is the sense of entitlement a group holds. Over time, the perceived injustice becomes central to the person's and the group's identity. The landscape in North America right now is very influenced by rights, wrongs, A mindset of entitlement and oftentimes Christians fall for that same strategy there are Christians today who want to cultivate solidarity as a group who's afraid of further injury or that needs to mobilize against the newest threat that may be coming Christian hope is a sword that cuts through the marrow of resentment hope challenges this fear of in, that, that we have that injustice is somehow going to go unnoticed because hope says, nope, God will right all wrongs. And so hope gives us cheerful courage. We betray our faith when we are more united by bitterness and grievances than by cheerful confidence in God's good purposes for the world and our love for the people who may injure us. So who knows? We may be on the verge of a new dark ages for Western civilization. We may be on the verge of the greatest revival the world has ever known. We may be in the final days before Jesus' return. We may be 7,000 years away from his return. I mean, have you ever thought about historians in the year 9,000 A.D. if they're referring to our era as part of the early church? The point is, we don't know the future, but we know the Lord of history. So no matter how dark our circumstances may seem, we are an Easter people of hope. The, the darkest times are the moments when hope comes into its own, when hope shines as the piercing light that it is. Hope is what leads people to soldier on even in the evidence that says the cause is lost. You know, it's not hard to maintain faith when everything seems to be working out according to your plan or as you've hoped. No, true hope rests assured in the coming victory when everything seems to be failing. And this is the hope that's going to grab the attention of a world of darkness. We live in an age of fear, despair, and hatred. Let us be the people of faith, hope, and love. So let's run with endurance. The joy of Jesus is ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the inspired words you gave us in the book of Hebrews. Thank you, Father, for the the great testimonies of the people of faith who we read about in Hebrews 11. Those great men and women who now surround us in the cloud of witnesses. The heroes from church history that we're so grateful for. Their discoveries, their rediscoveries, their faithfulness even their flaws, Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn from them. But most of all, Father, we pray that you would take these truths that come from your word, that you would plant them deep into our hearts. You would help them to bear fruit in our congregations. You would help us to be a people of hope, a people of faithfulness. Not pessimists, not optimists, but people who are faithful, knowing that anything is possible for the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thanks
0: for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more Gospel centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.